When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 60 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in our beloved franchise's quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in some way, unformidable. And the most recent baseball news I absorbed before sitting down to record this, uh, along with the All-Star Game and Pete Alonso's heroics was, of course, the MLB draft. It was hard not to be excited as a Mets fan to see uh, Kumar Rocker incoming. I like to believe that he will be too great and too exciting a figure to and too productive to ever feature in an unformidable. I leave the deeper analysis of that to the fine folks at, from Complex to Queens, but it was... Uh, for the layman, an exciting draft, and that seems to be backed up by more of the experts than not. Uh, and indeed, the draft has been more hits than misses for the Mets of late. Uh, Conforto, Dom Smith, Matt Harvey, Brandon Nimmo, even traded players such as uh, you know, Dunn and, dare I speak the name, Kalenic. Uh, provided valuable trade ships, at the least, for the Mets organization. And recent draft picks like Brett Batty have been hitting the top 100 prospect lists with a with a bullet, as they say. And I guess that's more common uh, with the draft these days. 
but of course there is a history of Mets draft woes as well. Uh, they aren't quite New York Jets draft woes if you uh, went to Shea Stadium to see both teams back in the 80s or otherwise just a fan of both teams, but that might be more virtue of the fact that the football draft is you know, generally a higher stakes, higher covered uh, event, and that I think higher draft picks flame out. It's, it's more surprising in the NFL when you get a Johnny Lamb Jones picked number two, uh, as opposed to, you know, in baseball where top draft picks do flame out all the time. But I've gone off on a long football tangent. I apologize. The Mets do have some historic draft busts, probably most famously Steve Chilcott over Reggie Jackson in 1966. Others, you know, flamed out, didn't live up to expectations, saw careers derailed by injury, all of the above, I guess, in the case of Paul Wilson, uh, famously the man who was supposed to anchor Generation K. Billy Bean is another famous first-round flameout. He was supposed to bookend the Mets outfield of the future with Daryl Strawberry in the, for what would be future great 1980s Mets teams, picked later in the first, same first round as Daryl. Uh, Billy, of course, uh, it's been way more ink and words and celluloid spilled on him and by people more acclaimed than I am to make him a subject worth touching and an unformidable. But that era was most interesting to me uh, personally, of course. I was coming of age as a Mets fan in 79, 80, 81. And also in the organization's history, Frank Cashin, of course, took over as GM in 1980 started that rebuild by drafting Straw and Billy Bean. Two years later, drafted a young high school pitcher named Doc Gooden, fifth overall. Now, of course, I was very young back then, but Daryl Strawberry made the news, because, you know, that was the number one pick overall, and he was considered, you know, generational talent, the black Ted Williams, as he was labeled. But for the most part, the draft was not really covered the way it is now. Um, in Major League Baseball, and it didn't seem remotely important. Uh, I had no idea who Dwight Gooden was until spring training, when he seemed to just burst forth unannounced. It seemed much more exciting to me that the Mets traded for George Foster. That was exciting at the time, I assure you, and then Keith Hernandez. But once Darrell came up and Doc and... The talk of baseball was what a great farm system the Mets had. The draft became of paramount interest. Between 1978 and 1984, the Mets picked no lower than that fifth-place spot where they drafted Doc Gooden, and that's supposed to be, I guess, the sole benefit of having a incredible period of ineptitude. Uh, so it got me thinking a couple more hits. Perhaps it could have been a bigger, better dynasty, and the upcoming ESPN documentary wouldn't focus solely on one year. But what I really got thinking about was 1984, when the Mets were suddenly, dramatically, amazingly good. I had ate and slept and breathed Mets for years. Finally, it was paying off for something good. And here was a suddenly good team that still had the top pick in the draft that year to add to this sudden trove of riches that they had. And the, I guess, next to last first round pick the Mets, overall pick the Mets had, I think 
Paul Wilson is the only other one. I'll have to look that up. But with the first pick in the 1984 draft, the Mets would take the unformidable Sean Abner. Sean Wesley Abner was born June 17th, 1966 in Hamilton, Ohio, a suburb of Cincinnati, I believe, but he grew up and played his high school ball in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, outside of Harrisburg. And it was there that he looked like a future baseball star. The, according to reports when they drafted him, the New York Mets scouts had identified him as a can't-miss outfield prospect after his sophomore year at high school, which uh, I guess when you're as bad as the Mets were in the early 80s, you may as well have started scouting players a sophomore year because you knew you'd be drafting high the next couple of years. He was a quintessential great athlete, a star at football. His number 16 was retired by his high school in both baseball and football, and in 1984, I couldn't find an actual date the draft took place. It, it, I knew it took place over multiple days that day, but just in the middle of June of 1984, let's say June 15th, New York Mets were in first place, a team that had been cellar dwellers for so many years in a row. Uh, first place in a dogfight with the Cubs and the Phillies in the middle of the season, and that team held the first overall pick in the 1984 draft, a suddenly enviable position to be in, and Sean Abner would join the Mets organization. Unfortunately, the can't-miss prospect, like so many can't-miss prospects before him, did in fact miss. Uh, He did sign with the Mets uh, quickly and played decently in rookie league ball in Kingsport. Uh, In 46 games, he hit 10 homers and which gave him a 481 slugging percentage. And he did fill up the stat sheet as well at age 19 in in the Carolina League in Lynchburg. Uh, He had 30 doubles, 11 triples, and 16 homers, uh, giving him a 301 average, uh, 301, 341, 485 slash line, 827 OPS. I don't know, not... uh, Probably not looking like you're on star trajectory, but not you know not what you maybe want from your first overall pick. But he was young for the league and not too bad. But in 1986, at the age of 20, he did struggle pretty mightily at Double A Jackson, uh, which may not have augured well for his future. But of course, what augured much more poorly for his Met future was how very well the New York Mets were doing at the Major League level in 1986. And maybe whoever was drafted in that first overall slot in 1984 was destined to be traded. The team quickly pivoted from rebuilding to trying to fortify a championship run and trading younger players for veterans, as would be the fate of Sean Abner. And there were admittedly a lot of misses in the crapshoot of the 1984 draft. Uh, Abner put up a career total, jumping ahead usually is at the end of negative 1.3 war, uh, but the player picked third overall, Drew Hall, outdid that, negative 1.4. But there are a couple of solid, uh, the player picked immediately after Abner, Bill Swift, number two overall to the Mariners, had a solid pitching career and accumulated 20.7 war over it. 
Uh, Jay Bell was picked eighth overall, uh, was put up 37.1 war over his career. Perhaps he would have been a better shortstop than Kevin Elster, better shortstop option than Kevin Elster, and or would not have bedeviled the Mets in the early 90s Pirates teams that soon supplanted them at the top of the division in the early 90s. Or you could really dream big and think about if the Mets chose who, the player who went 10th overall, Mark McGuire, who put up 62.2 war very famously over his career. But hey, who am I kidding? This is the Mets. If uh, we drafted Mark McGuire, we'd probably be talking about how you know, the, the crux of his career would probably be now how the Mets traded him away for John Candelaria or something during the 1987 pennant race. And it would be yet another LOL Mets trade we could all talk about. And probably you could do this with any draft. Sure, you could do this with any draft. I did it with several as I was preparing for this podcast. But the uniqueness of picking first overall uh, when your team is really turned it around so dramatically as the Mets did in 1984 uh, really fascinated me to look back upon and wonder what if if uh, Sean Abner really was a can't-miss prospect and did stick with the team, but he did not. And, and of course, there's not much I can add about the 1986 team that hasn't been covered in reams of paper and celluloid. My friend was just actually grousing about the upcoming ESPN series and saying that he doesn't know what hasn't already been reported on the 86 Mets at this point, which is a fair point, but I will be watching anyway. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All of that is to say. We all know how successful the Mets were in 1986, but the team continued to try and build, and perhaps its most famous move after the 1986 season was to acquire slugging right-handed outfielder Kevin McReynolds from the San Diego Padres. That, of course, involved the Mets trading most prominently Kevin Mitchell, a key player on the 86 team who would go on to outshine McReynolds on his own, and also a cadre of minor leaguers, uh, including Stan Jefferson, Kevin Brown, no, not that Kevin Brown, Kevin Armstrong, and very notably at the time of the trade, because he had just been the number one overall pick a couple of years before, Sean Abner, whose Met tenure would end before he would ever get a chance to play in the majors for the team, although he would come back to the organization very briefly at the end of his career. Mitchell, of course, would 
actually struggle his first year in San Diego, although he was lamented. Uh, you know, he was very versatile with the Mets and very beloved player, but went to San Francisco where he flourished for the Giants and you know, really made Met fans lament the trade when he had a couple of incredible seasons, including an MVP year in 1989 as the dynasty that was not began to decline. But for Sean Abner, the trade, I would assume, looked like a good thing, where you're in an organization where you're you know, buried you know, behind a World Series winning team with an outfield of stars of Daryl Strawberry, Lenny Dykstra, Mookie Wilson. And if you weren't traded and the organization just brought in Kevin McReynolds, there really wouldn't seem to be any place for you to play. Unfortunately, Abner's development did seem to stagnate. He was still very young for the leagues he was in. Uh, at age 21, he played in AAA Las Vegas, where his numbers were decent, but of course Las Vegas is quite the launching pad. Uh, but he did finally get up to the majors in 1987. He made his major league debut on September 8th, 1987, pinch hitting for Lance McCullers, senior, of course, and flew out uh, batting right before Tony Gwynn, who followed with a walk off of the Braves' Pete Smith. He'd get his first career start the next day, September 8th, and record his first major league hit in his third at bat, a double down the left field line off of Braves starter Dave Palmer. And a short week or so later, he would record his first major league home run, uh, turning a 13-1 San Diego deficit, uh, I'm sorry, 12-1 at the time, into a 12-3 game, game the Padres would eventually lose 13-3 when he hit a two-run homer off of John Burkett in the top of the seventh inning. Overall, in that late 87 call-up, he would go 13 for 47, uh, actually have an 817 OPS, uh, two homers, seven RBIs, uh, so a decent showing for a young prospect. But he'd never really show enough to earn regular playing time in the organization. He would be with San Diego through to 1991, but spent the bulk of that time in the minor leagues. Uh, The most at-bats he accrued at the major league level in San Diego was 184 across 91 games in 1990. Uh, That was also the best offensive output he had. Uh, when he hit 245 with a 286 on base and a 310 slugging percentage for a 595 OPS, and th- that was really, again, small s- smallish sample sizes over each year, but that was the most he achieved uh, with San Diego. Right before the trading deadline in 1991, the Padres sent him to the then California Angels in exchange for utility infielder Jack Howell. Uh, the Both teams were near the bottom of the division at the time, so though it took place at the trade deadline, it seemed like more of a probably a positional maneuver bench outfielder for a bench infielder. Abner didn't do much of note in 91 with the Angels, and he came to spring training with them in 1992, but was cut uh, prior to the start of the season in late March 1992, not making the roster, and he latched on with the Chicago White Sox as a free agent. And actually, uh, obviously, he was by then it was clear he was never going to be a, the star, the can't miss prospect that everyone dreamed of. But he he did go out with the with with a bang, relatively speaking, uh, 
Well, bang would be a strong statement, but he, he actually recorded the best year of his major league career in what would be his last professional major league action in 1992 at the age of 26. He would accrue 208 at-bats over 97 games with the White Sox, and he did only hit one home run. He had 11 career home runs, never showed the power that everyone foresaw for him, uh, but he did hit 279 that year over those 208 at-bats, which was the second most he accrued in any season, and put up a 674 OPS, which was the highest, uh, aside from that very small 47 at-bat sample in his first season in 1987. And he actually put up a 1.9 war in 1992 as a White Sox, uh, driven primarily by excellent outfield defense. Uh, 1.2 of that value was accrued on the defensive side of the ball. But that was not enough to keep him in the White Sox organization. He uh, was released after the 92 season and latched on with the Royals organization, where he spent all of 1993 in AAA Omaha. And it was there, or more specifically when Omaha was visiting New Orleans, that in a much less dramatic incident than Aaron Boone, Abner tore up his knee playing basketball before a AAA game, uh, tearing ligaments as well as knee cartilage. This caused him to miss the entire 1994 baseball season, and he gave it one last final try in 1995, back where he started in the New York Mets organization. Of course, the circumstances were very strange because, of course, the 1994 season famously ended with a player strike, and that strike was not resolved when spring training 1995 commenced. So, ergo, uh, Major League Baseball teams opened camp with uh, a lot of minor leaguers and a lot of potential replacement players. Were they going to try and go that route and field a team of replacement players if the strike did not get settled? It was hard to find a lot of information uh, on that, just digging back, but I did find an article from Port St. Lucie uh, in May of, uh, pardon me, in March of 95, where they were asking Abner if he'd be willing to be a replacement player uh, in the event they did that. Uh, he said he was mostly focused on trying to earn a job with the Norfolk Tides, uh, said they hadn't asked him to be a replacement. Uh, I know they're starting to ask people. If they asked me, I would have to think about it, talk to my wife and some of my close friends and see. Uh, so, of course, he was weighing the fact that he had battled through a full year of rehab and would really love to play baseball again with the thought of possibly crossing a picket line. Uh, but it was just very interesting uh, looking back and reading about that spring training, seeing Abner a former and faded star hoping to hang on, uh, playing in spring training alongside Bill Pulsifer, who, as the article noted, was considered one of the best prospects in baseball. And I also did appreciate the article uh, kind of humanizing, you know, that when he was weighing whether or not he should uh, play as a replacement player, Abner noted that he was going to need another knee operation after the baseball season. His wife was pregnant, and it just reminded me a lot of the Rick Reed situation. And and as Rick Reed blossomed into an all-star with the Mets, you know, hearing a lot about how he struggled financially and had family medical issues, and 
you know, felt kind of compelled and forced to uh, play as a replacement. I believe the Reds organization also kind of threatened him uh, with release when he was a fringe player. And it's a great reminder of, you know, what we're still talking about today, that minor league players are not treated fairly or well, and that it's easy to focus on, you know, major leaguers and their millions of dollars, or even the top draft picks of today who get these huge million dollar contracts. But even in Sean Abner's time, that was uh, not, I mean, there was a $150,000 signing bonus, but that goes quickly when you're paid peanuts in the minor leagues and you're blowing out your knee before you turn 28. At any rate, the strike settled not at the very beginning of the season, but uh, early enough that there were no replacement players in 1995, and Sean Abner played very little in Norfolk, uh, 11 games, 31 at-bats, whether it was performance or knee issues or a little of both, I cannot ascertain, but that was the last of professional baseball for Sean Abner uh, in the organization that drafted him as a can't-miss prospect at the age of 18. Uh, By the age of 29, Sean Abner was hanging it up for his major league career. uh, As I mentioned before, Abner actually recorded a negative 1.3 war, according to baseball reference. He had 840 career at-bats, a little more than a full season's worth. Uh, He hit 227. Uh, had a 269 on base percentage, 323 slugging for a 591 OPS and a 65 OPS plus. But he made it to the show, and you know draft position shouldn't determine so much. Uh, I mean, I know it does set expectations, but I mean the Major League d- Baseball draft is more of a crapshoot than any other. Just look at look at where the best pitcher in baseball was drafted. Look at where Mike Piazza was drafted. Look at Sean Abner's draft where. Mark McGuire went 10th, where every team in baseball passed on future Hall of Famers, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, who went in the second round. Al Leiter went late in the second round to the Yankees, of course, and so on it goes. But even without getting into a game on the major league level in a Met uniform, Sean Abner is a piece of Met floor, and that makes him unformidable. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow Amazon Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. You can find this and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets!